Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 226th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Tony Ascenda, Kyle McConaughey, and Avery O. Williams. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are talking to Sarah Labrie. She is a writer. She's written many, many different types of things, from articles to working on a novel to TV, and now she kind of made a very big splash in TV very quickly. She just started in TV and she's writing for Love Victor on Hulu. She uh, wrote for Made for Love on HBO and she recently wrote season three of a podcast for Wondery called Even the Rich and she just made a deal for her pilot script to turn it into a TV show. So She's uh, doing all right. Yeah. I think this is an episode that really does a great job of illustrating what feels like an overnight success to an outsider is really uh, just kind of the beginning of people talking about, you know, decades worth of hard work and studying and, you know, different programs and like really paying your dues basically before you have that instantaneous success. So in the case of Sarah, I think it's a really great story and really exciting for people who want to be serious writers, but also is filled with those, you know, teeny tiny gigs from, you know, working as an assistant and, you know, going back to school and making tiny little incremental jumps until she kind of hit the big time. Yeah. What's cool about Sarah is that it's like so clear that she's not just writing because she wants to get into show business, but she actually like loves writing Mm -hmm. and loves reading. And she has, she's so disciplined. And even during COVID times, she's like waking up at 5am and writing. And I don't know, just talking to her made me want to, made me want to write and it made me want to read more. And it reminded me of what it's like to be super excited to wake up in the morning and like work on the project that you're excited about. And just putting in the time, putting in the reps, right? Like Sarah writes every day, right? You wake up early, you go to work, you get it done. And then look, you know, as she says, you watch some housewives here and there. But the important thing is putting in that time. 
Well, cool. Well, I think you're really going to enjoy our chat with Sarah. Before we talk to her, I wanted to remind everyone that we have a Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash justshootitpod, you can find out what that's about. It's pretty much a way that you can help support us and help support the podcast. If you feel like you've gotten anything from it, then we would appreciate it. And if you pledge $10, even for just one month, we will send you a Just Shoot It podcast hat, which I do believe I need to send some out right now now that you, i think yeah you I, I think actually uh avria williams i think got a hat coming their way yeah and i think also i think we've had a lot of fun kind of expanding the team out a little bit and we've got some cool new things in the running and expenses have kind of become different than they used to be during the before times and so your money goes towards helping us do remote interviews making sure that you know things are coming out on time you know there's a lot uh, a different sort of work that we're doing now that's all supported thanks to you yeah on the patreon and speaking of that you know we love hearing from our listeners even though at certain times of the year we're not that great at responding to them but uh you know if you have any thoughts if you like anything if you want to hear more of anything please email us just shoot it pod at gmail.com we love to hear from you and mm-hmm. i'd love a, a voicemail too it's been oh, yeah. a minute since we've had a voicemail 2626 shoot one and maybe we'll do a Q&A episode coming up soon yeah so if you want to throw us a buck or two it's kind of like buying us a coffee which is a lot harder to do now that we can't see people in person go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod throw us a couple bucks we really appreciate it here's the episode When did you decide to enter the realm of scripted television narrative writing? Probably, like, I think November 2018, I finished a pilot and sent it to a manager, and things happened very quickly. So I, I'm, I'm setting you up early because this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of things that you've accomplished. The thesis of this entire episode is building up to that lightning bolt of success. But I think it's worth it to talk about, like, you're in a very short amount of time doing a ton of awesome work so congratulations well done thank you it always feels like everything takes so long you're always like waiting for the phone call or waiting for a meeting or you stop working for however long and you're like i'll never work again so it's nice to be reminded that people are always miserable or elated in this business at any given moment no no middle ground i do wonder that how biased we are matt and i as people that work in the film industry where we're kind of like setting you up as this writer who all of a sudden found like success overnight, you know, from 2019, early 2019 to now. It's halfway through 2020 and we do happen to be in like a, you know, <laughs> pandemic that has halted all productivity to the floor. And yeah, somehow... I'm still clinging to a Mountain Dew commercial I shot months ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like my crowning achievement for 2020. But I think our bias comes out because... Before you started what we are officially calling this like big success, I mean, you'd written stuff that played at Disney Hall. Your writing was like very successful. But when Matt and I were like, oh, okay, so you wrote an article for, you know, some magazine or whatever, you know, but for some reason, I think we look at you and we're like, what? It's like this overnight success. But probably in your eyes, you're like, well, I've done a lot of very successful things in the writing world before I got here. Is that, would you say that's true? And like, are a lot of, people in Hollywood just seeing HBO and Hulu and all of a sudden being like, wow, you're a real writer. <laughs> yeah. Do people care about the opera or like the articles published or no? People do not care at all about the articles <laughs> or any of the prose. 
I think the stage stuff a little bit more, but you know, I write libretti and when you say the word libretto, like everyone's brain. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking She's about. She's a libretist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I looked it up. No, people don't even look it up. They ask you what it is and don't listen to the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so your I, pilot is yeah. really great. <laughs> well, I think we should, we have to, define what it well, is that, right? oh yeah somebody us, that, that writes no, opera yeah it's somebody who writes the book for an opera or a musical in my case i was writing like deeply experimental opera but somehow i found my niche in that world of like experimental new classical music which is thriving and which turned out to be a really good jumping off point for everything else well, so what's your background? Did you study writing? Yeah, so it's funny because you guys are saying like overnight success, but like all I've ever wanted to do in my entire life is write and publish a novel. And that is what I've been trying to do for years. And I have meanwhile, like sure. gotten stuff on stage at Disney Hall. You know, I've written for TV. I've like done all of these exciting things, but I'm still not a novelist. That's so funny. Do you think of TV writing like staffing as a day job in a sense? To overgeneralize, yeah. you know. No, no, because yeah. I've had day jobs, and I associate that with like true untenable misery. And so, were you? You live in LA, obviously, which is you know you're immersed in the film industry. What was the first screenplay that you wrote? Um. Well, when I first moved out here, I worked at WME. It was during the like time of the merger, and I was such. A snob because I, you know, I went to Brown, which is a very snobby school, and I like studied literary arts there, which like was like a particularly snobby department. And so I was like, whatever, writing movies is stupid and commercial, and so like I would. Mm -hmm. I don't need (laughs) money. Money is a social construct. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally, I just did not understand that people needed money to live. So. I was like, like very arrogantly, like attempted to write a script while I was on a desk at, at WME, and never did anything with it. So I kind of moved away from that, and I started taking classes at UCLA Extension uh, in the fiction department. And even though you had an MFA in writing, well, this was before I got my MFA. Oh, oh. yeah, I went to Brown. I moved to LA to be an assistant. Was an assistant for three years got my MFA and then came back and was a writer. But, um, I, you know, I didn't, it do, it's not a path that makes a whole lot of sense. Was your MFA from UCLA? No, I moved to New York. I got my MFA at NYU. But it was still in writing English, not screenwriting. Yeah, I was going to, like, be in the New Yorker, man. Like, that mm-hmm. was the Paris <laughs> Review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll, you'll dabble with McSweeney's every once <laughs> exactly. in a while. So when you say not sustainable, you mean effectively just not lucrative enough like again it's a, it comes down to a financial situation right like if you know you had a patron that like would let you write your novel in the woods for forever you would do that instead or no no because I, I guess i didn't realize that you had uh, been an assistant at wme and like that you had kind of this other like you don't accidentally get a job at a one of the biggest agencies in the world you know what i mean you do if you're me i think Probably, <laughs> it's kind of. But hold on, it's like it, it, that job is notoriously terrible. Like and hard to get. I'm it's assuming super right? super competitive. Yeah, like everybody's Ivy League. You have to like dress up right and like eat shit for years. Basically, mm-hmm. it's a really brutal job. And that's have. like Ari Emanuel, like at his peak. Yeah, days, right? totally. It was like Entourage era, right? Or like just post Entourage era. Yeah. I knew Ari. He like he was a he was a card. <laughs> um, 
I feel like everything I okay I should preface anything I say about that with like I have like a truly delusional underlying belief in my ability to like do things that I'm not qualified for or like have no training in and so like I graduated from Brown and I was like I'm just gonna move to LA and, and work in Hollywood and I you know had a friend who had gone to Harvard and had all the Harvard connections and was like able to get my resume to HR but like I was not a fit for that job. Like I was on a desk and the agent I was working for was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> like I would do things like, this is awful now that I'm a writer and I know how awful this is. But like I set a pitch for a writing team and I told them it was at three, but it was actually at like 11 and like, <laughs> they called my That black. is quite, quite terrible. Right? <laughs> 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 and also kind of the easiest part of the job right like that's just like the, the google main calendar part, right? <laughs> yeah. is like keeping the schedule right right no i was a terrible assistant and they called me and they were like this pitch was set for 11 and i was like sorry like i just didn't understand the consequences <laughs> right. i was right. also right. like 22 and um, yeah by the way those people uh are no longer <laughs> no longer in the industry <laughs> that was their shot that was their big, Sarah. their big chance <laughs> In my memory, one of them was actually John Daly, and I don't know if I'm like conflating people or. That was me. That was me, actually. Sorry, everyone. Sorry. I look like John Daly. <laughs> it comes down. Um, but yeah, I was pretty immediately taken off that desk and like moved into the story department, where I just got to like read scripts and write about them and like not do anything at all lucrative for the company. But they kind of just like put me on the. The, the story department was like on the top floor like far away from the phones far away from the agents far away from the clients and i just kind of got to sit there and write for a year and a half oh that's cool so you were writing coverage i was writing coverage but then when i you know you do like two scripts or three scripts and then you have the rest of the day to do whatever so usually i'd work right. on fiction okay so so you were writing stories but not in screenplay format Stories for like literary magazines that nobody reads, and I would send them off and like get so excited when they got accepted. How long is a story like that? Usually like 5,000 words. 5,000 words? What's that? Like 10 pages? Like 20 pages double spaced. And those are stories. So you're both that are- right. <laughs> right. So they're, and they're fiction. Like you just kind of write about character. Like you're creating characters and plots and re- conflict and relationships and things like that. You're just kind of making it up. Yeah, you're making up, but it's also, like, it's such a different world because plot isn't important, structure is not as important, like, what's important is your style, your sentences, it used to be kind of like, you know, what your voice was, it's more of like an aesthetic experience, like, I didn't learn structure until I tried to write screenplay. Do you think, though, that your scene description benefits from it? Yes, but I think what mostly is I got from fiction is just like being able to track characters' emotional decisions, and that turns out to be a lot more important in TV than I knew. Also, I guess as a younger, newer writer, a lot of the plot breaking kind of happens in the room, right? And so, like, a lot of your real work basically is just kind of making sure that those decisions track and that the scene work basically on a scene to scene basis feels authentic and true and and fun in the ways that it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm on my second show, and I think the 
first, like the first dream I was in, I had no idea what I was doing or like how to contribute at all. And it was like, I was working with all these like crazy geniuses and it was just this incredibly ambitious show. And I felt that was the HBO Max mm -hmm. show. Yeah. It made for love. And that's not, is that out yet? No, unfortunately filming was interrupted by COVID. So what's this COVID thing? (laughs) Okay. So, and that was your first writer's room. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, I'm just, I just like clicked on one of your articles on not leaving Los Angeles. I know it's like 10 years old at this point, but this is the first sentence, right? Hollywood sweeps into your life in the form of Shelly Steinberger, a 40-year-old costume designer from the San Fernando Valley who sits next to you in intro to Spanish at the Amigos del Sol Language School. So I feel like that type of prose, like, that's like what gets you noticed when you write a pilot. Like, you might not think your scene description makes a difference, like I think in the day-to-day work. But in the, like, how do you get noticed when you are an unknown writer and you hand someone a script and your first sentence is, like, packing, like, tone and sure. setting and characters and And it's still economical. Era. Yeah. 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 Like, I think people really look at that and they're like, wow, this person can write, you know? It seems to me, like, from that sentence, you don't get character emotional tracking, you know, but you get... Uh, oh, what's the next sentence, you know? <laughs> Which I feel like so many new writers, screenwriters, they're not really worried about that. They're not really, really worried about the prose. They're worried about, like, let's paint this picture. It's, you know, let's do, like... And it just starts sounding like a hundred other things you've read before, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you want to be depressed about, uh, you know, the readability of your screenplay, crack open any Coen Brothers manuscript, and you're just, like floored right it's all of those things and then and more and also somehow geography and humor and everything all all at once it's funny i think directors oftentimes have a problem not with directing on the page but actually not really uh it's just things feel unclear basically you know that there's it's maybe too technical or too sparse basically and that a little bit of flower a little bit of something um i think can make the the read feel like it's meant to be how it's meant to be interpreted as a viewer basically i think it helps that i came to this from a place of loving to write and working really 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 hard on writing as opposed to like wanting to direct you know i write with producibility in mind now because i've worked in rooms but before i was only sort of writing the way i would write fiction that's funny you you mentioned producibility so you are married to previous guest, Justin Lerner, who is an independent filmmaker, right? And you guys have been together for a very long time. You've been with him while he was making movies, right? On like pretty low budgets. Do you feel like that relationship has informed how you approach things? Or is it just like, oh, Justin's doing his own thing. And then like once now you're in the TV world, you're thinking about production in a different way. Well, it's different because there's so much more money in TV and, like, in the kinds of films that I would make if I were to ever write a movie. But, like, I think with Justin, he's just, you know, he's able to do that dance of, like, raising money for indie films and, like, he's so uh, organized and ambitious and, like, hardworking. And I think that is has really helped define my practice. And also, like, he doesn't take no for an answer. And I've learned, like, you can get to yes if you just keep pushing and... That was not, like, inherent to my personality at all. That sums up Justin. (laughs) So, okay, well, so speaking of Justin, can you tell us what your pilot's about? (laughs) Um, Yes. It's about a black girl who's about to marry into an extremely white family who is um, 
basically blackmailing a black stranger into becoming her best friend so she doesn't lose her grip on her heritage and it's um very much based in reality i started writing it like around the time justin and i were planning our wedding and i was like truly terrified that suddenly everything about my life would change in a way that i couldn't control and is justin is it a jewish family in this in the pilot yes or is it okay so weird because as a jewish person i feel like extremely white is not jewish you know is like waspy like white anglo-saxon new england (laughs) or even like matt you know (laughs) sure yeah yeah why did you write that as a pilot instead of as a short story i guess i wrote it first as a novel and i don't know it was just like an idea i wrote so i basically wrote it you know 300 page version of it that it has like a you know beginning middle and end and then ended up turning the first little section into this pilot and then i don't know it was just so like when i started writing it as prose it was so much punchier and so much funnier and it moved so much more quickly than a lot of my short stories and like i just knew there was something there and that it wasn't necessarily the novel but like that the style of writing and like what i was trying to do i knew it would translate itself well into a pilot so is it that the idea just wanted to be a pilot? Is that really just, and that's kind of how your whole screenwriting career started then? Yeah, I mean, literally, I have, I was at breakfast with a friend whose husband is an agent at Paradigm, and she was like, she's a corporate lawyer, and she worries a lot about me because fiction writers don't make any money, and I was like literally living on no money. And we had known each other since we were 22. We were both assistants at WME, and so she was just like, you know, you're a really good writer. You should write a pilot. My husband could probably sell it. Just do it. And I had been sort of like working with that idea already and like just floating around my head. And it was just like those two things coming together. But it is interesting. Like it's such an L.A. story to be at brunch with a friend. And I think kind of the common knowledge of like an agent and you pitching them your pilot is like, yeah, it's going to be really hard to sell. (laughs) But it's so funny that your friend who didn't even know what you were going to write about was like, just write something. You're a good writer. I'm sure we can sell it is kind of like, I think it's just proof that it's much more about the talent than about the idea, you know? And I think a lot of people, I think it's both. I think it's both. Right. Yeah. But she didn't even, your friend didn't even know what the pilot was going to be. Right. Yeah. But like, again, you know, we had known each other for 10 years. She had like seen me like scraping across this desert landscape, like, by the skin of my teeth, like trying to be a writer. And she read, she's a supportive friend. She read my stuff and like, she knew that I wouldn't turn in something bad because I've been writing for too long to like write anything really bad. Right. I guess what I'm saying, opposed to what Matt's saying is like the idea didn't matter. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, not that the idea (laughs) doesn't matter. I'm just saying like a lot of times we hear of new people, people that are trying to sell things and get into the business that have this amazing idea and they just, they haven't quite written the pilot yet, but they have this idea and they want to pitch it and they want to get in the rooms. They want to tell people how this is a TV show. But what they don't realize is that people aren't really buying ideas. They're buying like people that have, that can execute on any idea really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I think writers are just people who execute on their ideas. Like that's, that's what a writer is. And the most important thing I did was wake up at 5 a.m. and write every day for years. Wow, that's awesome. And did you, so when you wrote that pilot, did you know that like there needs to be like an engine in a pilot, that a pilot needs to be kind of like the sample of like the first episode, but introduce all your characters and the setting and the tone? And how did you know how to write a pilot? I literally just knew how to write jokes. Like I just knew how to write jokes and I knew how to write 
fast so that people would keep reading. And, you know, Justin was the one who taught me how to use Final Draft, and I would write these scenes, and he would help me, like, with structure and just, like, because he had been writing screenplays for so long, but he hadn't really written a pilot either, so. Did you outline it? Like, is there, is it, like, a five-act, is it a half-hour comedy? It's a half-hour. No, I didn't. Like, my background... You wrote the novel. Yeah. You know, like... (laughs) Right, but but she said that the pilot is the end, is pretty much the first third, so how do you know where to end that pilot in a way where you're like, oh, now there's a show about this, you know? Uh, You get an instinct from writing so much fiction, reading so, so, so much, and when I was doing coverage for WME, I was reading constantly, so you just have a feel for it, but... I also don't know that there's a formula for a good pilot. Like, I don't know that you always have to follow the rules. I don't know that people care, you know, if it's if it's interesting or funny or there's a voice there. Like, nobody's really looking for act breaks. Yeah, I guess less about the act breaks, but they want to see, right, how at the end of this, you want to go on to the next one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it, because it came from a novel, like, I knew where I was going and where it would go. Right, a story is still kicking off, right? Like at the end, I'm assuming at the end of your pilot, like the friendship that, you know, your protagonist has with this woman that she's blackmailed is kind of like coalesced and they're like a little unsure of how things are going to work out, but they're implicated with each other. Things are complicated and they're going to have to keep going, right? (laughs) Like, yeah. um, And also there's the season arc of the marriage planning and all of that stuff. You assume at the end of season one, they're going to get married. Like, maybe things will come to a head. All, you know, like, yeah, we get it. You know, it's a pilot. There's a, there is a yeah. structure, a, yeah. tel- a tele-play structure of sorts that it's setting up. Yeah. Sarah, as a writer in TV, do people actually say teleplay? <laughs> no, no. People Thank did God. say it, and I took, like, a UCLA class, and that was the only time I ever heard it. Was this yeah, it's it seems so weird to say. So I can just call it screenplay and not sound like an asshole. Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe studios call it a teleplay. But I do want to say that I I made it easy on myself by like having the person that she's blackmailing be a guy and so creating the love triangle and like the potential for that. And that's a story that you know, you know, so when I'm pitching that, nobody's like, Where could this possibly go? Like (laughs) she's either gonna end up with one of them or the other one. And let me ask, were you thinking, Oh, I'm the the goal is to go ahead and sell this as a show, or was it more just like oh this will be a solid you know sample ultimately like or, or is did you realize this was going to be the beginning of you becoming a staff writer no i didn't i really you know i was still working my various freelance day jobs and not i don't know what i thought was going to happen really i'm one like incredible piece of luck is just like the justin's manager was interested in reading it and we had a social relationship and so he and he is an incredible manager and my manager now and he works really hard but anything could have happened like yeah and did you get notes on it and stuff or was it just perfect right out the gate one round of notes yeah it's almost perfect (laughs) so yeah yeah one notch away from perfect and then did you send it to the agent then so we did the whole thing like when you sign with the manager um, and you have a sample they send you on like the tour where you go to the different agencies and whoever wants to sign you and you meet with the different people and um so i did that i think i visited like five agencies and you know you feel very special but it's also like very anxiety inducing um because you feel like the decision you make whether you go with one agency or another is going to define your whole life but Luckily, six months after I signed, all the writers in Hollywood had to fire their agents. Oh, sure. That's true. 
Lucky you. Lucky me. <laughs> so it ended up being for nothing. But um, Well, at least you have a, a manager you love. Yeah. Uh, you, I want to break down a few things that I think are really interesting, though, about you walking into uh, a general of any sort, right? I think that there is something exciting to people, especially agents, but all Hollywood people, where they love to feel like they've discovered someone and it's their idea, right? So you have been working as a writer for years and years and years, right? But because it's not literally exactly screenwriting, they're like, oh, I've discovered this incredible writer. It's a new voice, right? This is so perfect, right? And so like that to me is really great. But then also because you didn't have expectations of like wanting to staff necessarily, you just like wrote this thing and like wanted to see where it went, you know, that takes a layer of anxiety away, right? And like, even though I'm sure you were nervous about these meetings or whatever, you're not sweating it and you're not like, oh, everything's riding on whether or not this screenplay goes. That's really empowering. So that's like a real one-two punch of like, new person like where have you been like how do we not know each other sarah and then also you not needing to depend on this the screenplay quite so much i think is really nice yeah i definitely think like people can smell anxiety um i think it helped a lot that i was so fixated and had been so fixated for years on the publishing world it helps a lot that i was broke for a long time and like didn't grow up wealthy and like didn't really value money like I wanted to be rich but like I want to be rich but like have a very vague concept of what that means like I think you know I'm I live a pretty minimalist life so I think some people come in they're like I'm gonna make a big in Hollywood I'm gonna make a billion dollars and like I just was like I've been living on two thousand dollars a month for however long like it'd be great if this happened because it'd be an awesome creative opportunity can we actually dig into your discipline for a second because Obviously, now you're on a TV show. When you're a staff writer, I imagine you're getting paid to write, so you know what you're going to do that day. But before you you get that job, when you're writing on spec, when you're working on your pilot and you're trying to get these articles done and you're flirting with a libretta and also working on your novel, how do you determine what you're going to work on in the morning? And if a friend calls you to go to brunch, how do you <laughs> say no to them? I lost a lot of friends when I decided sorry, it's kind of a bummer answer, but like when I was like 23, I was like, I'm going to make it as a writer or I'm going to die trying. And I stopped going out. You know, I spent all my time. This is insane. Like I was an insane person and I luckily found like the one other person in the world who could understand that and like was willing to just accept that I didn't do social stuff. I woke up early, I wrote and everything else was shaped around that um, for years and years. And I do some... Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media 
medium or phone sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code Just Shoot It 50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code Just Shoot It 50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the US, that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker by email or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the US. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. Sometimes worry that like having a stable job almost works against that when you're so used to struggle. It's just interesting to not have to anymore. So you're a freelance writer, you're like a shark. Like you can't stop moving. You can't sleep. And like the world I'm in now is so different from the right that writing world. I talk about how when I was at Comedy Central, which was a good job, there was a period of time that I really didn't have a good time there because I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. And as soon as I started directing full time, even when they weren't literally my dream projects, I felt this sense of satisfaction that meant that I didn't wake up at five in the morning to write every morning. And now I feel like that drive is lost a little bit, you know? It's like easy to be like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm relatively satisfied creatively. So, you know, maybe I'll just watch some TV. Yes, exactly. I mean, also, like, you have to give yourself a break. We are in the middle of a pandemic and the world feels as if it's crumbling to pieces. But also, yeah, I, I hear that. Like, I feel like I grew at some of the best fiction of my life, like sitting in a cubicle wanting to die because I had been yeah. under the fluorescent lights. That's for fuel. Long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It is really hard to pivot from paid work that you're not, that's not your pretty baby, happy making. Yeah, but yeah. you're, you know, but you're having yeah. fun working with other people going from that to like your own project by yourself that you have to like sit at home alone and work on. And when you know, it's not going to generate money, Right now, you know, the odds of it actually generating money in the future are so slim and you know that you could actually just be relaxing and then find another one of these paying jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not your baby, but it's something else, you know? Yeah. Um, it's hard to it's hard to go back and forth. Like, I think most people's the traditional model, right, is like you kill yourself for many years and then you get paid once and then you just keep trying to find the next paying gig. And hopefully you get to a place, I think, especially in writing, where it's like your voice is so definitive in the writer's room, in your episode, in your this, that people approach you and they say, hey, by the way, we just, you know, got the life rights to this person. Like, can you help us develop this TV show around them? And then then it, it does become like your baby again, you know, but it didn't require you to sit in your room just working on an original piece of material that you don't know if anything will happen with it. I love sitting in my room, like writing, like and trying to make things work that are just not working. I mean, what I was talking about before was more just like having a day job at a terrible corporation and like trying to write while not while being on the clock, basically. But like, I think I don't know, there's something that's really nice about both, right? Like being in a room, you get to work with people smarter than you or with more like, um, experience than you. And like, you are pretty safe once you get to a certain level like you're always going to be able to find some kind of job and just you might not ever be known by name as a writer but like you'll work and then there is sort of the glory and prestige of having something that's your baby and but then you also have you take the risk of it failing completely and and so I don't it's hard it's just hard to know which one is the one to want to shape your life around you don't find the tv stuff is creatively 
sucking up all of your creative juices <laughs> or is that a concept do you believe that concept that you have like kind of so much to give creatively in a day yeah and I think I've been lucky because I've really loved both of the shows I've gotten to work on and like felt very excited and proud of being able to like contribute to them um but yeah you write you write your own stuff on the weekends and you you do the tv stuff when you have to do the tv stuff it's it's hard like right now because the hours I have really great hours but then that means I have a lot of free time and like I want to use that time to write my other projects but you know what like whatever I'll watch Real Housewives and, and do a hit workout on YouTube like it's not it could be much, much worse. It's not the end of the world. It might be. We're not sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> but if it is, like, all the more reason to watch Real Housewives. <laughs> sure, yeah. So tell us about, like, the HBO show. How how was it going into that room for the first time, having never written for TV? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to see, like, you on the other side. Like, you you decided to, to jump into this pool, and now you've done, you've been, you know, you've done a few laps, let's say. What was that like? What did you take away? It was really hard and really humbling and it, hard in, in what ways? In that like you go in thinking or I went in being like, I know how to write. Like they're hiring me because I'm so talented and then like you're really there to service the showrunner and pitch in his or her voice. It's not like anything else. There's no way to like take a class to be good in a room. You just have to learn that secret language and it's all invisible and it's all these like threads and wires and, and I was in an amazing room they were the most incredible mentors they were so intimidatingly good at their jobs that I just it was hard because I wanted so badly to be good at it but also just felt crazy all the time because everything moves so fast and you just don't know you don't know what the rules are when you first step in. so what are you doing like week one are you is there like an outline of episodes on a whiteboard yeah, so when I started that room, um, they had sort of been slowly gearing the room up and they'd been adding writers slowly. So they had already, I think, you know, Patrick had written the pilot and then I think there were about three episodes in and there were notes on the whiteboard. No, there were two episodes in. There were, no, there were notes on the whiteboard and um, we were kind of still fleshing out the shape of each episode. And had the pilot been filmed already? No. Oh, so this was just straight to series. And so are you guys trying to figure out the tone of the show also? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I've come to really like about TV is that it's like the showrunner figures out the tone, and then, like, that hierarchy can actually be kind of helpful because sometimes it, when you're new, it's good for a question to just have a yes or no answer as opposed to, like, being really subjective. I mean, I think that's true always, frankly. Whether you're the person who has to give the answer or, you know, you're just hearing the answer. Yeah, yeah, for right. sure. Or just so what's an example of that? Like, like, oh, would it be too crazy if this thing happened? Or is it, does it make sense? Like, is this joke too silly? Or is this event too big? Like, is that kind of the type of thing that you would get a yes or no yeah. answer on? Yeah, exactly. Or just like, how dark can we go? Or like, what is this character sort of... Or even, is this right, right? It can be as, like, does this feel right or not? Yeah, it's right? all feel. It's literally yeah. all feel. But that there has to be one person whose feeling is the objective right. feeling that you're going for. I want to ask, actually, um, less about... I want to dig in a little more about the, the politics of the room or the unspoken language that you were talking about before. Can you give us a few, for instances, of, like, examples of things that you kind of... It took a minute for you to figure out, unravel what they're, what's happening, you know? Because that's a thing that I 
on the executive side was always like, I don't know what is going on, but something just happened and I'm going <laughs> to, it's going to take me two weeks to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I'm the kind of person who like, I needed everything to kind of be above the surface. Like I need an absolute answer. You know, I like to know what the rules are. And so I would just ask a lot of questions that I feel like staff writers, maybe you kind of want to just feel things out. The advice I would give to people starting out in rooms is just like sit back and listen. I luckily Patrick is like, he used to be a professor, like he's an incredible teacher. He's really warm, like really good advice I got from him one time was like, if you're pitching and your pitches aren't landing, sit back and watch the pitches that do land and like watch how people's faces change, you know, like really pay attention. And when you're saying pitches, you're talking about like you're trying to break, you're trying to figure out what's going to happen in an episode or what a character does or what the arc does or what, where they end up and you're throwing out ideas. Exactly. It's just in, yeah. in the group. Yeah. It's like okay. literally this character walks into a room and picks up a bottle and throws it on the floor or whatever, you know, and like, right. it's more. I love that idea. But <laughs> mm. um, great. You partner up on it. <laughs> Matt's not <enough. laughs> Um. Yeah, so that's that's like you want to just get a sense of like why pitches are landing and like not there's like standard stuff that I just think I've been lucky enough to have people tell me. But if you didn't and you're a staff writer just walking into a room and you you just don't know, you don't know like you, that you shouldn't repitch. You know, you don't you don't know that like. Um, Sorry, br- break that down a little bit more. Repitch as in like, oh, I love this idea and you bring it up again, basically? Yeah, like if I'm like, oh, yeah. guy walks into a room, throws down a bottle, you guys are both silent. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just move on to another idea. Don't be like, oh, I wonder if they no, heard like, me. And then, yeah, 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 it's a blue bottle. <laughs> right. Yeah. that bottle thing can work. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of that really... episode of uh, Seinfeld where, do you see the one where George Costanza tells the woman he's dating, he's like, uh, by the way, I love you. And she like doesn't respond. <laughs> he's like, guys, I don't know. And then he finds out that she's deaf in her left ear. He's like, I was on her left side. Yeah. Like, maybe she didn't hear me. Should I bring it up again? Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. It's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> Were there other nuggets like that? Like, don't repitch is like a great one, right? Like, just move on. Have something ready. Yeah. Like another really great one was like, it's not a good idea to just chime in with stuff that's not working. Which, like, I do think a lot of staff writers do because they want to be part of the conversation, but they're not pitching. They're just, like, talk, like shit-talking someone else's pitch. Like, and I don't think I ever did that, but, like, it's just a good rule of thumb. Like, either pitch or don't say anything, you know? Right. Kind of be solution-oriented, yeah. not problem-oriented. Because that negativity doesn't get anyone anywhere. Did you find that you needed to be super familiar with like the showrunner and other writers in the room, their previous work to like kind of get a sense of them? I mean, that's a smart idea. I probably should have done more research, but I think the only thing I did, because I literally got the job on a Wednesday and started on a Monday and didn't even interview for it. Like it was just sort of out of nowhere. Was it based off your pilot script? I got hired off my sample without doing an interview. And that was the only sample, right? Just one script? Yeah. So they didn't even interview you? No. How did they know they would like you? I think it helped that Patrick has a background in like publishing and in fiction, and he, he published several novels, and he read a lot of my fiction that had been published online. Oh, cool. Yeah. So not just the sample. Yeah. Right? Like the, That's the whole thing, right? It's like, it's not overnight. It's, you know, a couple decades. 
and samples that match what they are looking for, e- even though that's they're different mediums. Exactly. Okay, so you did this show, and then how do you get on the, the next show? How do you get on Love, Victor? That was solely my manager. Um, Adam Londy, who is an exec at Elizabeth Berger and Isaac Aptecker's company. So he... He was, he'd been talking to my manager, uh, looking for somebody for the show, not me, but one of my managers, like other senior writer clients. And um, she was booked and my manager was like, I have this other client you might be interested in. Um, and then Adam and I. Which is genuinely the sole job of the manager. <laughs> That's most of it. It's generals and like, you want this person, but what about these three choices? <laughs> yeah. 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 But with writers, it's actually probably pretty good because i feel like that happens with actors they're like can we get george clooney and they're like no but what about michael show johnson <laughs> yeah. he's got, got a strong or... chin yeah yeah he was he was in groovity <laughs> yes. i love my manager and he has gone to bat for me like so hard for so many different things and he has great relationships with people and Adam was not an exception, and then we Skyped, because this was, like, right after everybody went on lockdown, and um, he had worked on corporate, and corporate was my favorite show, and we just talked about corporate for half an hour, and he set me up on an interview with his bosses, um, and they are a writing team who wrote Love, Simon, which is the Netflix movie that Love, Victor is based on. Right. Is that Berlanti? And... Yeah, Berlanti was involved in the movie, but he's not involved in the show. Cool. And then, like, when they hire you, do they care about your familiarity with the subject matter yeah, or the world? Yeah, had you seen Love, Simon? I had, and I had a lot to say about it. I, I like cute teen rom-coms, and, and they are, like, they also show run This Is Us, which is, like, a really lovely, very funny very warm-hearted show yeah and a smash hit and a smash hit (laughs) but so this room is less literary let's say right like what what were the differences that you noticed what worked in this room that maybe didn't work in your first room like what what were the what tell us about the learning curve there yeah i think because patrick is sort of an auteur like he had done maniac which is this hybrid genre show for Netflix where I think they kind of just let him do whatever he wanted like he or to a degree like he is so big and ambitious and like experimental and um, I think a show like Love Victor a lot of the you know the showrunner I think came from Shondaland a lot of the senior writers had worked up you know on network shows and um, it's more of like a machine and I'm learning a lot about more of just the technical notes calls and like act breaks and sort of structural expectations. And that's all mixed obviously with like the writing, you know, but there's, um, it's a little bit more practiced, I'd say. Not sure, that, technical even, right? Yeah, more yeah. technical. Like Made yeah. for Love, I think all of that stuff maybe because it was HBO Max is a little bit more free i don't know i don't know like hbo max isn't worried about the time in between commercials my guess is that a majority of our listeners are not the ones that need advice on what to do when they get into the writer's room they need more the advice of how to get into the writer's room or how to sell their pilot do you have any but i think there is a sneaking anxiety of like well if i got the job what would i do like what literally happens you know 
The only reason I've been tr- avoiding becoming a staff writer is because of that anxiety. You know, people want me to write on their shows all the yeah, yeah. time, and I'm like, I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what enough, to do on enough. day one. Um, but what do you have any advice, A, from your days as a fiction writer, B, from your days as a script reader for William Morris, and C, as your more recent days of selling a pilot, do you have any advice for people that are working on their pilot? Like, do you think you sold this pilot because it's a story from your life? What are the magic elements that make people perk up and pay attention to a, to a pilot? <laughs> I mean, my advice would be like, literally try so hard to do anything else. Like literally give your soul and your youth to like attempting to do anything else and then just like write a pilot very quickly using all of that pent up energy. Like you kind of know when something has a fire under it and when it doesn't. And I wonder sometimes if people spend too much time trying to perfect things that are only ever going to be mediocre when like maybe just start over. What do you really want to do? What do you really want to write? Like, yeah, I think I was able to walk into rooms and pitch this with like no experience because I really cared about the story and I could tell it in a funny way because it was my lived experience of my life. And it sounds like in other words, you're saying practice writing a lot. Yeah. And then, and then you'll know that you're, what you wrote is good and you'll be able to talk about it in a confident yeah. way. Write, read a lot, write a lot. I think also, like, don't lie to yourself about whether something is good or not, because if you're lying to yourself, like, you're lying to other people, and they'll know, and it'll, it just hurts you in the end, because um, it makes you look lazy. Like, just write until you have the thing that's good. And then I think also just in terms of, like, pitching or, like, going out for um, staff writing jobs, you want to be memorable, like, have a story in your back pocket that nobody else could tell. Have a point of view. Yeah, and have a take, if you, if it's a staff writing job or a different, like, a pitch on something that you, on some other property, like, just definitely, like, really have a take that only you could have on that show. Yeah, I remember hearing this interview with a writer from The Leftovers, the third season, and she said that in her interview for the job, she basically just said how bad the second season was <laughs> <laughs> and how if she was on the show, this is what she would Yeah, that's called season. negging. That's yeah. Not- <laughs> and maybe, like, don't do that. Like, I've also heard those stories. Like, I was just really mean in the interview when I got the job. But, like, don't count on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, it's funny um, because I think people are always focusing on you know, specific parts of their personality and ignoring the secret sauce that really got them the job. And I think it's important to reiterate that, like, your advice of like, oh, yeah, if it's not going to be good, start over and and start on something that will be good. But the important thing that underlines all of that is that you are waking up every morning and doing the writing, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're, like, toiling on a screenplay for three years and then you throw it away because, like, you didn't show up to do the work but then it takes you another three years to write another screenplay. The problem is the output, not the quality of the work. I mean, you have, your work has to be good as well, but you know, but you know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? Like, I think there is that part of like showing up to do the work is important and also having taste is important. Right. But if you don't show up to do the work, then the taste doesn't really get you far enough. I do think the universe will reward you if you are like showing respect for your work and, for your practice like I really believe that if you align yourself with the outcome that you want you will get it but that doesn't happen if you don't do anything right right <laughs> you know? yeah yeah can I ask just one final technical question yes 
something I've been thinking about a lot because I've been, as many listeners know, I've been giving a lot of notes on part of the way I procrastinate as I like start answering emails of people that are like, hey, watch my short film or read my script or whatever. I've been giving a lot of notes and I feel like one of my most common notes is like, this just sounds, feels familiar. Like I've seen it before, you know, like in another way of saying cliche, how do you as a writer like avoid cliche? How do you not write stuff that you are writing because you've seen it in a different movie or, or you've read it somewhere else? Or do you think that's just a practice and experience thing? I mean, I do think being in a writer's room will beat it out of you because if you pitch a cliche, like you'll just get made fun of and shamed. And like you just... Cool. Every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then like being in an MFA program is not so different from being in a writer's room because you're getting your stuff critiqued all the time and, and fiction writers are brutal. Like you just... It helps to be constantly criticized, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, have people be hard on you, so you'll be hard on yourself. I think there's the secret piece of advice in there that I don't know if you realized you gave, but like, if you are not being invited into the writer's room, but you want that experience of learning from the writer's room, maybe try to get into an MFA program, which is probably a little easier than getting into the writer's room, and probably uh, the money flows the other direction. But that experience... That you had for sure getting critiqued on your short stories I'm sure it helped make you ready for the writer's room yeah for sure I, I mean I think other reason I am where I am in part is because I got an MFA from NYU uh, in fiction but uh, the other thing that was really good about getting an MFA is that I was working with like big famous writers and you realize that they're just people who just work really hard or you know execute on their ideas and I think being up close to like these names that I had grown up kind of revering like Sadie Smith and you know like you just you think if they are just people then people can do this you know? right they're not magic right yeah yeah, exactly. yeah. right yeah but they are kind of right <laughs> yeah, Sadie, Sadie's kind of magic. <laughs> and, and they and they love writing in a way that um I think is seems kind of if you love reading it's it seems like it's easier to be a writer <laughs> You know, than people that are forcing themselves to write in order to have a movie to make, you know? I wonder. Sometimes I think it's people who are just, like, really good athletes would probably make really good writers. Like, people who can just, who have the endurance and stamina to actually just do the hard work because it's literally, like, muscular, difficult work. There's so many, like, romantics who fall into the creative arts, but, like, really just want to think all the time you know and thinking isn't writing i have not read this article that you wrote yet but um i'm planning on it and it's called demystifying the writer's fear of failure and i does it does it cover similar stuff yeah it's a lot of developing a writing practice and realizing that you're you're like like a doctor or lawyer or whatever like you don't you're not born knowing how to do this stuff mm -hmm. you're gonna do it wrong or like an athlete yeah. yeah you wake up you set some tea you light a candle <laughs> you catch a breeze and maybe it doesn't come to you that day right maybe just you wait for the muse yeah <laughs> yeah so if you want to read that article or any other of Sarah's selected works, you can go to her website, Sarah Labrie lives in Los Angeles.com. And it's Sarah with an H, S A R A H, Labrie, L A B R I E. Well, are you cool to hang out with us for some unpaid endorsements? Absolutely. Unpaid endorsements. 
I have an endorsement that will affect like nobody <laughs> or like it uh, applies to almost no one. But if you happen to have an old dog that has trouble walking up and down stairs yeah. because they're just old, yeah. we got these things and they're called Dr. Busby's toe grips for dogs. <laughs> we just installed them on my dog today. And all of a sudden he can walk up and down. We have like a staircase to our bedroom. He was not walking up. We'd have to carry him up. We have a, like a little stair, a few stairs to go outside and he was just like waiting at the bottom of the stairs. He'd wait there for hours if we forgot to bring him in the house. We'd have to carry him up, but we install them. They're these like little rubber circle, like cylinders with a hole in the middle, and you stick them on their nails so they have traction. Oh. And now he's going up and down the so stairs. So it's like no little dog fingernails, basically. You gave your dog a pedicure? But with, yeah, except, uh, but with we call them toenails in the dog world. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, um, but yeah, it's like a, but it's like, like Crocs, grip. basically. If you could glue Crocs yeah. to your fingertips, basically, or feet. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's grips for their toes, yeah, yeah. and so if you have a, an old young dog that's ha- an old an old small dog, <laughs> or it might work for big dogs too that is having trouble with stairs. Check out these toe grips. Yeah, Doctor Busby's toe grips for dogs. Well, there you go, <laughs> Sarah. This is a tough act to follow. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much anything you endorse will be better. <laughs> I endorse uh, Michaela Cole is the creator of Chewing Gum and I Made the Story, which is a really great show on HBO. And she gave this lecture and it's just so honest and so brutal and this like very specific critique of this trajectory of the industry of like giving. She calls, um, she doesn't want to use the word diversity because she feels like it's, it's the meaning has become so muddy. And so she calls these outsiders that people bring to the TV industry, she calls herself and, you know, her crew of people misfits and the way that like, you know, big studios will offer them deals and then bring someone else in to change the vision of their project and like slowly reduce their role in it and how she details how that happened to her. And it's just, it's so funny and it's so smart. And like, um, I think there's also a really great profile about her in New York magazine recently that I would highly recommend by, E. Alex Jung, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Um, but yeah, anything Michaela Cole related, I think is my. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about her lately. Is that, do you know if her lecture is on video anywhere? I found the text, I see. It's on YouTube. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that. Awesome. That's great. Instead of writing, <laughs> in case Perfect. you're wondering. Well, uh, I am still deep in my alone binge. Uh, so okay. I haven't been uh, alone as a, a, a TV show a, called the alone a survivalist Netflix. TV show on Netflix and Hulu and you know there's like six or seven seasons and it's all uh, especially good for the quarantine because it's just about people surviving in the wilderness and self shooting and stuff. It's like Naked and Afraid, but even more sad. Um, but so uh, I've been watching a lot of that. But the one thing that I took a break to watch is uh, Robert Zemeckis's debut feature. I want to hold your hand, which uh, is out on Criterion. They just had like the the big annual sales where you get everything half off, and it's about a bunch of kids who all want to go see the Beatles at the Ed Sullivan Show, and it's um it's interesting to watch because it does a few of the things that Zemeckis became famous for later. Like it's there's a little bit of Forrest Gump and there's a little bit of Back to the Future, and it's all very light and fluffy. 
but it's interesting to just look at like the early versions, the early ways that he's kind of testing the waters and technology and storytelling and kind of the archetypes that he likes to use and how far it goes off the rails, I guess, in uh, modern era. It's pre Beowulf, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, what do you mean by goes off the rails? Like it gets bad? No, no, no. The movie is always just kind of quaint and fine. I'm saying uh, Zemeckis's career, maybe, you know, oh, oh. Yeah. There's not a ton of welcome to Marwin in I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is kind of charming to me. So uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand is just like nice and straightforward. I think it may be even on the streaming on the channel as well. Cool. Well, Sarah, we plugged your website. Sarah Labrie lives in Los Angeles dot com. Is your podcast out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is um, Wondery, which did the uh, Tiger King podcast um does a series about dynasties and america so the murdochs the gettys and i wrote one about beyonce and jay-z that um was super fun to write is it non-fiction it's non-fiction it's kind of journalism documentary style um i didn't like they they have hosts who like record it and they produce it so i didn't have anything to do with that side of it but i did all the research i wrote you know a script that the host adapted and um really how many episodes are there Four. Oh wow, cool. Yeah, I got to go super deep into Beyonce and Jay-Z's relationship and it was incredibly inspiring, actually. Now everything oh, I do good. I like with, with Beyonce yeah. do this. So maybe I shouldn't do yeah. it if Beyonce wouldn't do it. There you yeah. go. Well, Sounds you know, good. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, you can uh, email us about and ask us about anything Sarah said, and you can see notes for the show. Um, if you want to email us, we are justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can see all the show notes at justshootitpod.com. You can find me. I was plugging my Instagram account forever because I was doing these video breakdowns, and I will get back to them. But I've just been way more obsessed with Twitter lately. I kind of just discovered Twitter during the pandemic. I'm at SmiteyPileg on Twitter. I'm at OKaplan on Instagram. You can follow the show at Just Shoot a Pod everywhere. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow everywhere. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And you're listening to music by Jazar, provided by the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.